as we move into John chapter 15 this morning, before we start, there's a, a couple of sort of cultural, regional things that we need to understand in order for us to really grasp all that Jesus is telling the disciples here. There are things that we as, as 21st century Americans might miss just simply reading through the text. First, obviously, this is Israel that we're talking about here. And, and there in Israel, there were vineyards everywhere. Right? And even to this day, if you go there, there, there are vineyards all over the place. Everywhere you would have went, there were grapes growing. People had their own little personal vineyards. There were commercial vineyards, people who, who worked in the grape industry. Right? It, grapes were a staple in those days. Grapes, raisins, wine, juice. People made vinegar out of the grape juice, grape leaves. right? And so, so grapes were a big industry in that time. Vineyards were common. It was almost like if you go to eastern Washington and all the apple orchards, or if you go down to Aurora and all the weed shops, right? They're just everywhere. It's just, it's just something that we see all the time. It's something that everyone would have been extremely familiar with, even if they weren't personally involved. And I think that we've all seen grapes growing in movies. You know, some romantic comedy in Napa Valley or some Lifetime movie in France or whatever. We've all seen, not that I've seen Lifetime movies, but I hear. Um, right, we've all seen how grapes grow, right? There's the posts and the wires before them and the, and the grapes grow up along the, you know, all that. And in those days, and even today in more traditional vineyards in the Middle East, the grapes, they grow along the ground. There's, the, there's the, the vine and it grows and there's the clusters of grapes and they grow along the ground. And what happens is the, the vine dresser will come and he'll pick up the, the area where there's fruit, the bunches of grapes, and they'll put a stone underneath it. And they'll set the, the bunches of grapes on this, on this rock. And why they do that is to keep the grapes out of the dirt, to keep the grapes away from the bugs. They lift the grapes up so they have more access to the sunlight. The second thing we need to know before we get into John 15 is that grapes were the national symbol of the nation Israel. Right? It, it, was, it was sort of like, you know, Americans and the eagle. Right? It, it was, it was kind of, they identified themselves with the grapevine. They're on the doors of the temple in Jerusalem. They had these, these ornate, solid bronze doors. And these doors that they made, they're estimated to cost $12 million today. Right? They're, they're these big elaborate doors. And on the doors they had embossed, embossed is the opposite of engraved, right? Engraved, you cut it in, embossed, it's sticking out, just, just be clear. I learned that recently. Um, right? Embossed on the doors were these giant clusters of grapes. And in the Old Testament, we'll get there in a few minutes, Israel is referred to as, as the Lord's vineyard. So that's the second thing I want to note before we get into the text. The third thing, remember last week as we closed John chapter 14, <clears throat> Jesus said, arise, let us go from here. So Jesus and the disciples at the end of John chapter 14, they get up and they leave the dinner table. They're in the upper room where they had just shared in that, that last supper. 
And so they're walking from the upper room to the Kidron Valley, to the garden called Gethsemane, where Jesus would be arrested in a few hours. And as they go from that upper room to the Kidron Valley, they would have walked past the temple. And we know that it's evening at this point. So they're walking at nighttime from Jerusalem to the Kidron Valley. And we know that it was almost Passover. So it would have been a full moon as well. And so you can imagine the light of the moon shining down, hitting those bronze doors <coughs> with those grape clusters on them. And they would have been illuminated. They would have been lit up. And that was most likely Jesus' inspiration for the talk that he's about to have with the disciples. John chapter 15 and John chapter 16 are a, a, a conversation that takes place along this stroll they're taking to the Kidron. They're walking along this road right past all these vineyards, right past the temple. So that's the, that's the backdrop. That's the setting for this passage. And we'll see how these three things are important as we, as we open up John 15. He says in verse 1, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. So Jesus begins to teach the disciples another parable, another spiritual truth using common situations that the people were familiar with. Jesus says, you see that over there, guys? You see that door right there with the grapes on it? You see these vineyards? He says, that's what life is like. Life is like a vineyard. Now that I just said that, I can only think of that in the Horace Gump voice. By the way, that was unfortunate. <coughs> he says, God the Father, he is the one who tends the vineyard. And Jesus says, I am the true grapevine growing in that vineyard. He says, you know, I know that you guys are thinking that, that Israel is the vine, but Jesus says it's me. Look to me. I am the true vine. And by the way, this is, this is the last of Jesus' seven I am statements in John. Remember he said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And now he says, I am the true vine. Why does Jesus refer to himself as a vine? Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 5. Starting in verse 1, it says this. Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it, and hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Some of your translations say it yielded bitter grapes. So we see this picture here. The Lord, he, he plants this vineyard. He does all the groundwork. He, he clears the stones away. He, he irrigates it. He, he preps the soil. He creates the best possible situation for these vines to grow. And it says he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And so we see that as, as the time came for the harvest, 
You know, the, the buds come up. There's the, we start to see fruit. He's looking for good fruit, and all he sees is bitter fruit. All he sees is wild grapes, and they were no good. So it says in verse 3, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there for me to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I look for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? The Lord says, look, I did everything I could possibly do to make this vineyard fruitful. And, and, and here he says, he's talking to the, to the men of Jerusalem and to Judah. And he says, man, I, I did all that I could do. And, and it didn't produce the right fruit. And so he says in verse 5, And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. And I shall also command the clouds, and they will rain upon it no more. The Lord says, because the vineyard was worthless, because it was unfruitful, because it was unproductive, he says, I will destroy it. I'm going to stop working on it. I'm going to dry up the rain clouds. It's going to become a desolate place, overgrown with, with bushes and briars and thorns. And then he says, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah. And his pleasant planting, he looked for justice. But behold, bloodshed for righteousness. But behold, an outcry. And so he says this. He says that Israel is that vineyard, and Judah is that pleasant planting, that garden. And so the Lord says, look, these are my people that I'm talking about, and now I'm going to cut them off. And that's what we see happening in 70 AD, right? The people were cut off for a while. They, they, were, they were a vine of bitter grapes. And so Jesus says, look, in light of that, in light of Isaiah chapter 5, he says, I am the true vine. I'm the real vine. And my father is the vine dresser. He's the gardener. He says in verse 2, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. So Jesus says, my father cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit. And the fruitful branches he prunes so they'll produce even more fruit. We've talked about this before. right? The Bible was written in Koine Greek, in the common Greek. And, and oftentimes certain words have different shades of meaning. And it's the same in our language, right? If you take the word season, right, it can mean winter, spring, summer, or fall. I know a lot of you guys are compelled to finish the song that James Taylor wrote right there, right? But so, so sometimes we hear that word season, and that's what we think of. Sometimes we say, oh, I'm in a really hard season of my life. Right? We're talking about a period of time. Sometimes season is something that you do to your food to add flavor, right? Words can have different meanings sort of based on, on the context, on how they're used. And we see the same idea here in this passage with two words. 
The first word is Iro. It's A-I-R-O. And, and that word is translated here to take away. Right? Every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. You know, some of your translations say every branch that does not bear fruit, he cuts off. And that's not wrong. That's a, a, a correct translation of that word. But the word is also translated, actually more commonly translated, to lift up or to raise up or to take upon oneself. Matthew chapter 4, verse 6. Remember, Satan is there tempting Jesus. And he's quoting, to Jesus, quoting scripture to Jesus. And he says this. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. That phrase right there, to bear you up. That's the same word here, Iro. And so Jesus could be saying he bears up or he lifts up every branch that does not bear fruit. Remember the vines, they grew on the ground naturally. And so the farmer would come along and he would raise the branches up onto the rocks. He would get it off the ground so they become more fruitful. And, and as, as unfruitful branches were, were raised up, as they were lifted up, as they were cared for, they tended to become more fruitful. How many of us have heard this verse? You know, any branch that isn't fruitful, it's going to be cut off. It's going to be carried away. That could be what the text is saying. But I think that the other interpretation is a little closer to the heart of God. The branches that are, that are struggling to bear fruit. The vine dresser comes along and he bears them up and he cares for them. He looks after them and he helps them. And next, we see that the vine dresser prunes the branches that do bear fruit. So they become more fruitful. The idea there is trimming back to make more fruitful. And I think we all understand this concept, right? I used to have this apple tree in my yard in my house in North Bend. And when we first moved in, it was all scraggly and long branches. And I think the first summer I had three apples. Not super fruitful or productive. And I went out there and I trimmed it way back. Cut off all those ends. And the next summer, it was loaded full of apples. And I think we all understand that principle, right? As you trim it back, you know, the tree refocuses its energy to produce fruit. And it's often taught that the Lord will prune us. He'll snip us and it cuts us and it, and it hurts, but it makes us more productive in the next season of life. And, and, and that's not wrong, right? That's, that's true. But there's another idea as well. It's more than just snipping. It's more than just cutting away. The Greek word here for prune is kathiro. And that word kathiro, it rhymes with ero, the first word we looked at. And so Jesus actually, in the original language, he's making a little pun to the guys. He's being clever. He's making a joke. But this word kathiro, 
it can mean exactly how it's translated in most of our texts. To prune, to snip, to cut. But it can also mean something else. And, and, and there's truth to this idea of the pruning. Right? There are things in our life that are, that are unhealthy. There are things in our life that are, that are hurtful. There are things in our life that are, that are detrimental to our physical and spiritual well-being. And there are other things in our life that maybe aren't hurtful, maybe they're not detrimental, but they're not helpful either. They're, they're, they're kind of just neutral, but they're, but they're holding us back, wasting our time and our resources. And the Lord, sometimes he'll bring in the pruning shears. And, you know, when we talk about pruning shears, we're not talking about those giant loppers that cut off huge branches. They're the little ones. Right, that trim little bits here and there to shape, to take off the bad parts, to bring health back to the life of the plant. And, and pruning, it, it hurts, it stings. And a lot of times we say, no, Lord, I, 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 I like that part of my life. I don't want to let that part of my life go. I don't want you to prune that. But remember what the author of Hebrews says, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So, probably Paul, the author of Hebrews, says lay aside every weight and sin. And the idea of laying aside sin is clear. The idea of laying aside every weight is a little less clear. And I think this is the idea. Imagine you're watching the Olympics, and the guys all come out to run the 100 meter. And they come out, and they've got their little short shorts on, and their tank top, and their running shoes. And the last guy comes up to the line, and he's got snow boots on. And he's got a big puffy coat and a scarf. Now, he might not be breaking the rules technically, but he's certainly slowing himself down, isn't he? He's weighing himself down so he can't run as effectively as he could otherwise. Paul says, look, those things that are slowing you down, those weights, lay them aside so that you can run the race with endurance. Now listen, I don't want anybody to Google the official Olympic rules for running and text me and, well, pastor, actually, I don't, I don't care. It was, a, it was an illustration. But one aspect of this, this pruning it's talking about that. It's about trimming. It's about cutting away. But that word kathiro can also be translated to clean. And this is an interesting idea. As that unproductive branch is lifted up and it's set on the rock, as it's resting on the rock, it begins to produce fruit. Now somehow imagine that branch slip back off the rock and it falls into the dirt and it gets soiled and it gets defiled. It says the father comes along and he kathiros, he, he, he cleans it, he lifts it back up, he picks it up out of the filth and the mud and the dirt and the muck and he, and he dusts it off and he places it back on the rock. Let me tell you why I like this idea, this aspect of the interpretation, better than the one we usually hear. 
First, as we're going to see in a minute, the branches are clearly a reference to believers. And we get that. And we see here that the unfruitful believers, they're lifted up out of the world, out of the soil, out of the dirt. And and what are they placed on? The rock. Jesus, the rock of our salvation. And as the Father places us on the rock, out of the world, out of the dirt, what happens? We begin to produce fruit. We become fruitful Christians, productive believers in the kingdom of God. We begin to manifest those fruits of the Spirit that Paul talks about in Galatians 5.22. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We begin to see those fruits of the Spirit manifest themselves in our lives as we we rest on the rock. But sometimes we fall off the rock, don't we? We fall back into the world. We get dirty, we get muddy, we get defiled and polluted. The circumstances of life, sometimes they get the best of us. But when we realize it and we call out to the Lord, what does the Father do? He washes us. He he cleanses us. He lifts us up. He bears us up upon himself. So what is this verse saying? That Jesus, does Jesus mean that that he cleans or that he prunes? Yes. Right? I think it's both. Both aspects are involved. And he says in verse 3, you are, you are clean already, or sorry, already you are clean because of the word, word that I have spoken to you. So Jesus here, he's talking to the 12, to the, or the 11 now, because Judas has already left. He's talking to the 11, and he says, you have already been clean, washed by my word. And I think that, well, that reminds me of what Paul's talking about in Ephesians chapter 5. Remember, he's talking about being sanctified. He's talking about being set apart from the world. And he's talking about being washed by the water of the word. And we, when Jesus says that we're clean, it's that same word that he used for prune in the verse before, kathiro. He says that we are being clean. By the message of Jesus. And I think that that interpretation, it fits linguistically, culturally, theologically, and and contextually. I think that those genuine believers who are not finding the fruit of the Spirit in their lives, the Father, he lifts them up and and he sets them on the rock, and then they begin to bear fruit. But once they fall back into the world, right, the Father comes alongside and he lifts them out and he cleans them up. He cleanses them through his word. The other interpretation is that Christians who who never grow, Christians who never become productive, who, who never begin to manifest those fruits of the Spirit, they're in danger because the Lord may come and he may cut you off because you're a worthless branch just sucking up energy and resources. And eventually you're going to be cut off and thrown into the fire. And there, frankly, is some merit to that interpretation as well. And I think that Jesus could be saying a little bit of both. As he's talking to the disciples, he may be alluding to both these ideas. That he prunes and he cleans the fruitful. 
But eventually, he casts away the perpetually unfruitful. The meaning of the next verse is very clear. He says in verse 4, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. For those of us who have spent any time around the church, we've heard this word abide over and over and over. Right? We've talked about the need to abide in Christ. And that word abide it means to continue in or to endure, to remain, to be in fellowship with, to be, to be in community with. And so what Jesus is saying is, listen, guys, listen, church, stick close to me. Stay plugged into me. And when you stay plugged into me, I will be in you. And I want to note something about this connection to the Lord here, this abiding. It should be a fruitful thing, and it should be a personal thing. Our connection with the Lord is a personal, relational connection. If you take a branch and you break it off a tree, what happens? It dies. Is it instant? No. You know, Christmas is coming, isn't it? And I know a lot of you guys are already fighting the urge to start putting up Christmas decorations. I know for many of you guys, the struggle is real, right? Just resist. Fight the power. But, you know, November comes around. It's time to go to the Christmas tree farm. You're walking around. You finally select a tree after your wife has rejected 600 beautiful ones. And you get it home. And you decorate the tree. And it's beautiful. And it smells so fresh. And it looks so full of life. But after a week or so, you go back. And that tree is all withered and brown and dead and, and needles are falling around. Right? When, you, when you take a branch off the tree, it doesn't instantly wither and die. It doesn't instantly turn brown. It still has the appearance of life. It can still even have fruit on it for a while, can it? If you, if you break the branch off of an apple tree, do the apples instantly fall off and die? No. It still looks fine for a little while. But there's no real life left in it. And eventually, that fruit starts to degrade and rot and it falls off. It'd be crazy if I drove over to Wenatchee and, and, and cut off a branch from an apple tree and I brought it home and I said, Look, babe, we're going to have apples all year long now. All right? And that would be ridiculous, of course. But you know what? That's how we are spiritually so often. We, we disconnect from the Lord. We stop going to church. We stop reading the word. We stop praying. We stop fellowshipping with other believers. And you know what happens? Nothing at first. You still look okay. You might even still have fruit in your lives for a while. But soon we start to wither spiritually. That fruit in our lives, it starts to, to, to mold and rot and fruit flies start circling around. And here's the thing. The Lord's love is constant. 
But our abiding is a choice. It's a decision that we have to make. John Corson has an expression that he always uses. And of course, if you know John Corson, it's always a cheesy expression that he uses. But he says this. He says we need to stand under the spout where the blessings come out. And the idea is this. The Lord's blessings are always being poured out. It's simply a matter of whether or not we are positioning ourselves in a place where we can receive his blessings. Think of it as a waterfall. Right? That waterfall, it's constantly pouring. It's constantly coming forth. And we can either move under the waterfall and get wet, or we can stand aside from the waterfall and stay dry. And, and that's exactly what we're talking about. We, last week we talked about this idea of, of not experiencing all that the Lord has for us. How we see so many people who are having these deep, fulfilling relationships with the Lord. We see people who are so full of the Holy Spirit. We see people who are so blessed by the Lord. And we say, why, why, why am I not experiencing all that these other people are experiencing? What's, what's, what's wrong with me? How come I'm not drinking, drinking so deeply from the well that these people are? How come I'm not experiencing this, this river of abundant life? And we touched on that a little bit last week. Philippians chapter 4 verse 9. Right in the preceding verses he's talking about experiencing the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. But then he talks about how that's only available to believers. And then he kind of goes further and he says, it's not even available to all believers. Remember what he says in verse 9. He says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the peace of God will be with you. See what he says. He's talking about abiding there. He says, we'll experience all that God has for us when we're living in obedience to him. It's what Brother Lawrence famously called practicing the presence of God. Putting into practice all the things that we've learned. Spending time with the Lord. Developing that, that two-way relationship. And, and, and that's what's missing. That's why so many of us struggle in our walk with the Lord. It's because we're not abiding. We do what we want. We live how we want to with no regard to the Lord. And then we say, Lord, why aren't you blessing me? Lord, why am I not experiencing the abundant life? Lord, why am I not finding your peace? It's because we've moved away from the spout where the blessing comes out. Jesus says in verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I am him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. I am the vine, Jesus says. We already established that in verse 1. But Jesus makes this clear. He says, and you are the branches. You're the little twigs that are they're growing out of me. So you need to, to stay connected to me. You need to stay plugged into me. We need to, we need to walk together in fellowship. And when you do that, he says, you'll be fruitful. You'll be a happy, productive believer. And I'll do great things in your life. But he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. We need to remember that. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. 
And you say to yourself, well, we can do some things. I can build a house. I can, you know, whatever. Right? Jesus is talking spiritually here. Apart from me, you can do nothing that really matters. And I've said this before. You know, I, I can preach a good sermon without Jesus. I can deliver an exegetically sound, theologically solid, uh, maybe a, it's a good day, I deliver it well. Right? I can do ministry apart from the Holy Spirit. But you know what? There's nothing there. There's no, there's no power. There's nothing of, of any real substance if we're not abiding in Christ, if we're not empowered by the Holy Spirit. If, I, if I'm preaching a sermon or I'm doing ministry apart from the Lord, it's just me. And trust me, you don't need that. Nobody needs that. Nobody needs more of me. Nobody needs more of you. You know what we need? We need more of the Lord in our lives. And apart from Christ, we might look okay for a bit. We might have the appearance of life. But we're dead. And we can accomplish nothing for eternity. Nothing for the kingdom of God. Verse 6. We're only going to verse 8, by the way, just so people aren't getting scared here. Um, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. We read that, especially verse 6. And that sounds pretty hardcore, doesn't it? I better try really hard to produce some fruit. Because if I don't produce, the Lord's going to come and he's going to cut me off. And I'm going to be thrown into the fire and burned. If I can't produce some fruit real quick, I'm going to hell. So it's like, fruit, grow! But listen, a branch doesn't have to try and grow fruit, does it? The branch doesn't have a fruit-growing plan. It doesn't say, oh no, I, I, I better get to work. Growing fruit is just the natural result of being a branch, isn't it? It just happens because of what the branch is connected to. Fruitfulness is the same way in our lives. It's just the natural result of us being connected to the Lord. If a branch has no fruit on it, say you have an apple tree and it's full of life and fruit, and there's one branch and there's no fruit on it, there's no leaves, it's bare, right? The rest of the tr tree is, is healthy, right? It, it, you know, that branch, it might, it might be part of the organism, but it's not really connected. It's not really plugged in. It's not really getting life. And so that branch, what's it good for? Firewood? Smoking ribs, maybe? And, right? Not producing fruit, that's for sure. And so what Jesus is saying is that some people 
pretend to be part of the body. They, they attach themselves externally, but they never really connect to Jesus. They never really abide. They're around, they're, they're in proximity to the things of God, but there's no real life. There's no real connection. And eventually, those people will be gathered up and thrown into the fire. I want to be as clear as I can here, guys. This is not a warning against struggling Christians. This is a warning against pretend Christians. And I want you to understand the difference. This is a warning to the Judases, not to the Peters. Do you see the difference? And here's the thing. Sometimes Judases and Peters can look the same on the outside. Sometimes the Judases look a lot better than the Peters, don't they? But in the inside, one has life and is connected and plugged in, and the other isn't. The other one's a phony. It's fake. It's dead. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. We talked about this a couple weeks back, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. But man, I like the idea of that. Ask whatever I want. I'm going to get my list out. Jesus says, ask anything according to my name. And a lot of times we, we, we see so many Christians, they start, they start reading off their Christmas list. Jesus said, ask for it and you're going to get it. But remember what James says. He says, you ask amiss so you can use it for your own pleasure. So Jesus here is saying, listen, if your heart is bound to mine, if you're walking in fellowship with me, your desires will start to line up with my desires. And when that happens, you can ask whatever you want because the things that you want are the same things that I want for you. Sort of a side note. Sometimes, you know, we'll be, we'll be sharing the gospel with people and, and, and people have these concerns. You know, if I become a Christian, I, I, am I going to have to stop smoking weed? If I become a Christian, am I going to have to stop drinking whiskey? Am I going to have to stop listening to worldly music? Does that mean I can't watch TV? Does that mean I can't hang out with my old friends? You don't have to stop any of those things to become a believer. But when you genuinely are born again, walking with the Lord, abiding in Him... He just begins to change your heart. And you no longer want those things. You no longer desire to do those things that the Lord doesn't want you to do. And sometimes we, we struggle with some of those things. Sometimes believers still struggle with, with substance abuse and addiction and some of these other things. Why is there a struggle? Because the Spirit has changed us. And the Spirit is telling us no. No. But the old man is saying yes. And Paul talks about this, this battle we have between the flesh and the spirit. But listen, if Jesus wasn't working in you, there wouldn't be a struggle, would there? If Jesus wasn't working in you, you wouldn't care. You'd just do whatever you felt like doing. And so that, that conflict, on one hand, it's encouraging because it lets us know that the Spirit is at work in our lives. On the other side of the coin, if you can sin 
Just do whatever you feel like. You can sleep around, party, lie, cheat, steal, gossip, and you don't feel any conviction. There's a good chance that Jesus isn't in your heart, that he's not working in your life. There's a good chance that you're not a Christian. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Again, being fruitful isn't what makes us Christians. Doing good doesn't make us believers. But the fruit, having a good life, it's evidence that the Lord is at work in our lives. God's love for us, it isn't conditional. Right? It isn't based on, on how we perform. Well, I, I did good this week, so the Lord loves me. Or I struggled this week. God doesn't love me as much this week. And a lot of times, that, that's how we base our relationship with the Lord on our performance. We think that he, he loves us when we do good, and he doesn't love us when we do bad. And, and that's, a, that's a, a, a fundamental misunderstanding of the doctrine of justification. That when we come to Christ, all of our sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. And when he looks at us, he sees us through the righteousness of Christ. And that's encouraging. That wasn't in my notes, so I'm lost now, by the way. Um, right? Our performance doesn't dictate God's approval. I, I don't, as a parent, I don't say, you know, my son Isaiah, he did really good in jujitsu this week, and I love him so much. Now, this week, he fought with his brother and he snuck some ice cream. I don't really love him as much this week. I know it doesn't work like that, does it? My, my, my love for my children isn't based on, on their performance, it's based on my relationship to them, it's based on the fact that they're my boys, that they're my sons. And even more so, God's love for us is not based on our performance. It's based on his character. It's based on who he is. As John says, God is love. It's not as though God loves us less when we struggle with sin. But here's what happens. We as believers, we're not free to enjoy or experiencing that, that love when we sin. We're not free to experience all that God has for us when we're in sin. Right? When, when my boys do well, I reward them often because I love them. I want to bless them for doing well. I want to show them my love and approval. When my boys are rude and disobedient and rebellious, hypothetically because they would never really be that way, when, 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 they're, when, they're, when they're rude, they're disciplined. And listen, every one of us who are parents understands this. That discipline comes from the exact same place that the blessings and rewards come from. They come from my love for them. My love rewards obedient children and it disciplines disobedient children. I discipline them to correct them, to get them on the right path so that they're free to enjoy all the 
blessings of obedience. And that's how it works. God's discipline comes from the same place that his blessings come from. His love for us. And when we fall into sin and when we choose to walk in sin, the Lord disciplines us. He'll, he'll give us a spanking because he loves us. To set us back on the right path so we can begin to enjoy his love and his peace and his blessings again. Obedience allows us to experience all the blessings of God. The trouble is, many of us don't really want that. We don't really want all of God. We want just enough to get by. I read this quote a while ago from this guy named Wilbur Reese. And I think it's a great quote. He says, I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of him to make me love a black man, a white man, or a gay man, or to pick beats with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of a womb, not new birth. I want about a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I'd like to buy $3 worth of God, please. And you know, that's how a lot of us are, isn't it? We want just enough. We want a, a paper sack full of eternity. Not enough to radically change our lives, just enough to get away from hell. Right? Just enough of Jesus to slip under the gate and get into heaven. Man, I don't want a little bit of Jesus. I want it all. I want to experience all that God has for me. I want to live in full surrender to his will and experience all of his blessings. I want to love Jesus and walk with him and abide in him. I want to allow him to transform my life. John Piper said something to this effect. It's not a quote. It's more of a paraphrase because I can't remember where he said it at. But he said this. You never go deepest with Jesus on a sunny day. It's in the moments of desperation. I think that it's in those moments of, of difficulty and trial, those moments of, of pruning and shaping, the moments that we've, that we've fallen off the rock, as it were. Those are the moments that we, that we encounter the Lord in the deepest way. That's where we go deep with him. When we, when we press into Jesus in the midst of pain, in the trials, and in the hard times, that's when we experience the fullness of God. And, and I don't know everyone here this morning. Some of you guys aren't even saved yet. And you don't even need to worry about all of this abiding right now. You don't need to worry about being fruitful and, and being pruned or any of those things. You just need to worry about not going to hell. Right? That's your primary right now. And you might say, you know, Pastor, I just don't really like the idea of hell. Good, don't go there. Right? Come to Jesus. 
if you're a believer and you're not producing fruit, could it be that you've fallen off of the rock? Could it be that you've fallen into the dirt? That you need to be born up. You need to be lifted up. You need to be resting on the rock again. I just want to encourage you guys. Allow the Lord to do that work in you this morning. Let's leave this place and abide in him. Amen. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful that, that we're connected to the vine, Lord, and that you are the vine dresser, and that you care so much about us, Lord, that you care for us, that you pick us up out of the dirt of the world, and that you set us on the rock, Lord, on Jesus, the rock of our salvation. And we pray that you would just help us to Help us to walk with you, Lord, to walk in obedience and humility and to experience all the blessings that you have for us, Lord. We ask that in your name, Jesus. Amen.